Hello, Bob Mason here. Before we start, I want to give you a brief heads up. If you have a technical or other naughty client problem that one of our guests, current or past, might be able to solve, the Trust Hacker might just be able to help. The Trust Hacker has a call-in number. Call it, leave a 30-second message containing your 30-second or less question, and you just might get an answer on the Trust Hacker. Call 336-308-3556. That's 336-308-3556. Now, on to the show. Welcome to Trust Hacker, the podcast for elder and special needs law attorneys hacking their way out of the trust and tax jungle and seeking the sunny uplands of trust nirvana. And now, here's your guide, Bob Mason. My guest in this episode is a friend and colleague of many years, Tom Begley III. Behind his back, a few of us call him T3, not to be confused with his father, Tom Begley Jr., also a very well-known elder law attorney. Tom received both his undergrad and law degrees from Georgetown and practiced with his father for a few years. His father's practice morphed from a very well-known banking and real estate practice in New Jersey into an elder law practice, and Dad dragged his son along. Since then, Tom has carved out a solid reputation on his own and is a sought-after speaker and presenter on the CLE circuit. Tom is very widely published and currently chair of the Wills, Trusts, and Estates Department at Capehart Scatchard, a multi-office and very old New Jersey, New York, Pennsylvania, and Delaware law firm. Join me as I talk with Tom Begley. Tom, welcome to the Trust Hacker. Bob, thanks for having me. Well, I've been looking forward to this for some time. Let's just jump right into it. I was doing some background checking on you, and you went to Georgetown undergrad, and you went to Georgetown Law School, but there's a gap there. Looks like about four years or so. What'd you do? Well, actually, yeah, there was a three-year gap between college and law school, and I, uh, even though I came from a family of lawyers, I decided after college I was never going to practice law, and I decided to try other things. And in that eclectic uh, set of jobs, I uh, worked at a place called the Cambridge Newsstand for about a year where I helped take a place that was losing money and made it profitable so the owners actually sold it and made a couple of bucks rather than losing their shirt. The, uh, then I worked at a place called the MS Skin Company doing uh, sales of off supplies to government agencies and Little things like that. I worked for one of the very first, uh, managed one of the first national chains of, uh, I guess, video companies, which really is dated now, called Errol's. So, you know, I did a lot of jobs here and there, and then I guess uh, met the girl of my dreams, who I've been blessed to be married to for 26 years, and realized that for the amount of time I was putting in, I needed to do something more lucrative for a living, so I decided, for the wrong reason, to enter the practice of law. And really, for the first two years, it was miserable because I did real estate law, but I fortunately, my father and I stumbled into elder law at that time, and it's been a joy ever since. So um, everything seems to work out for a reason. And you're a fairly well-known father-son couple out there. Everyone's heard of Tom Begley Jr. and Tom Begley III. And so the two of you got into it at sort of the same time? Well, what happened was... um, in my summers coming home from law school, I would clerk for my father. And 
between my first and second year of law school, my father at that time was a very prominent real estate and banking attorney. However, his longtime assistant actually had uh, well, knew somebody that uh, she was very close with that had a husband and wife situation where the husband was diagnosed really with a double whammy of Alzheimer's and uh, Parkinson's. And then what happened, they wanted to make sure the wife wasn't going to get wiped out financially by the long-term care costs. He almost immediately went into a place called Butwood, which was a big long-term care facility at the time, which dealt with a variety of mental health issues. And this is back in the summer of 1988. So my father told me, hey, uh, you know, so-and-so has a problem here, and we really need to figure out what to do. I don't know anything about this. Um, you know, I want you to go down to the Burlington County Board of Social Services, see if you can check and ask if there's any government programs that might be able to help them. And I want you to go down to the Rutgers Law Library in Camden and do some research as well. And so I went to both those places, did a lot of research, did a memo. I have to tell you, I'm not honest. I'd be dishonest if I told you I understood the memo that I wrote to my father at the time. But based on that, he was able to help somebody. And he really enjoyed the ability to make sure that this woman who had been married to this nice man for, at the time, 45 years, wasn't going to lose her house and lose everything. And as a result, within a couple of years, he left practicing, really, I mean, at that time, um, he'd been doing you know, banking and real estate for nearly 30 years, and he switched gears and wound up becoming a public benefits lawyer because he said he really enjoyed going home at night knowing that he would help you know, families that had disabilities or individuals going into nursing homes to make sure that they could, A, get quality care, but B, maintain a level of dignity as far as protecting the assets I'd worked so hard to earn over the years. And I guess when I came out of law school in 1990, I worked for him for the first 12 years out of school, and uh, I did the real estate for a couple of years as we were segueing out of it, but... I also slowly, in the first couple of years, got into the practice of elder law myself, and it's everything that my father found it to be destroyed for filling on a you know, personal level. And it looks like your practice has developed a fairly significant, um, I guess what I would call a technical component, that you really got into trust and tax, and it, in addition to just asset protection planning, where you get into longer-range planning and, and tax planning and, and some very technical issues that, well, frankly, many elder law attorneys are afraid of. How did you happen to get into that? Well, basically, it's to reflect the needs of the clients. New Jersey, unfortunately, is a very confiscatory state when it comes to you know dealing with the, the respect of other people's money. So, Initially, along with my father, we started learning about how you know to do various you know asset transfers to expedite people's eligibility for Medicaid or other long-term benefits. The other thing that we found out was that we have folks that needed tax planning as well. Although the law has changed radically in the last 15 years, as we all know, we went from a $600,000 federal state tax exemption in 1997 to what is currently 20 years later a $5,450,000 exemption from these taxes. New Jersey, unfortunately, has the chintziest state in the country. We have a $675,000 death tax exemption. So for 
a variety of reasons we wanted to make sure that we could set up trust to make sure we help people get on public benefits, help people minimize their exposure to death taxes as well. But the other main thing that we decided to do as far as learning and utilizing trust is to reflect that whenever you do planning, you're dealing with people. And to this date, many people still talk about doing asset transfers to the children. So the typical situation is mom has dementia, it looks like she's going to go to Happy Acres Nursing Home in a few months. And the old-fashioned way to do things is, well, let's gift a few hundred thousand dollars out and we'll give a hundred thousand dollars to each of the three kids and then we'll hold on for dear life and hopefully we can make it through the five-year look back for Medicaid eligibility. However, Unfortunately, not all of the kids are good stewards of money. Some are, have financial problems, and we would find out that even though the gift is supposed to be a gift, while mom and dad are alive, they certainly don't want to see the money taken away by creditors or the IRS. And sometimes we see things like that happen. Uh, or sometimes children would predecease their parents, and as much as their, the parents would love maybe their son-in-law or their daughter-in-law, they certainly didn't intend for that person to be an heir under their estate. So initially, one of the things we would create trust to do is ensure that, at least from a moral, if not a legal level, while a parent was still alive, that the money would be kind of locked into a trust situation managed by the most financially astute and honest child or financial entity, if necessary, rather than take the risk that the assets could be you know, squandered while the parent was still alive. Over the years, and I'm sure you've seen this in your practice as well, Bob, we've also found out that inheritances need to be protected. I mean, I jokingly tell people up until about 25 to 30 years ago, unless the last name of your family was Rockefeller or Ford, no one ever really inherited a lot of money. I mean, I live right outside the Philadelphia area, and quite frankly, if somebody died back in the you know, 60s or 1970s, maybe you know, they sold the raw home in Philly and the executor would pay off the funeral and the bills and maybe everybody got checked for $3,000 each. It wasn't a life-changing event. But nowadays what happens is people are inheriting hundreds of thousands of dollars, even millions of dollars, something that our parents and grandparents never were able to do. So now over the past 20 to 25 years, we've taken a look and seen what happens when people inherit vast sums of money. And we found that there's usually a handful of things that you need to be aware of. First, can they handle the money? Sometimes it's better to keep money in trust to make sure the child doesn't blow through the money. There's uh, statistics, and they vary, but some say that people go through the inheritance in 18 months. So if you have somebody that's going to, I jokingly tell people, tear through money like it's a piece of chicken, then you want to make sure that their money is held so it's there for them while they're alive and need it, but they you know don't squander it. Uh, we have cases where folks wind up getting divorced or have credit issues, and we can set up a trust that if it's appropriately uh, crafted, it can make sure that children can have their assets protected in those regards as well. And the big thing in New Jersey, on a positive note, is that People, as much as they may love their son-in-law or their daughter-in-law, would like to know that when their children die, that the money goes to the grandkids. As my father's told me on more than one occasion over the years, and, and he's quoting the late great Zig Ziglar when he does it, he says that if he knew the grandchildren were going to be so much fun, it would have been nicer to their parents. So 
And then also because we have such a confiscatory state with taxes, it's nice to know that when the kids die that we're not going to get a double whammy with the estate tax again. So there's lots of reasons to do trust. And although many attorneys do it for the technical level of either asset protection taxes, one of the things that my father started, and I think I've expanded upon over the years, is looking at estates, not just as dollars and cents, but the interaction of human beings and how we deal with knowing who we're leaving money to, what their graces are, what their limitations are as well, to make sure that when an inheritance is left, it's going to be utilized in the way that the parents want it to be utilized and also in a way that it's uh, preserved and protected so it can be enhanced for the benefit of the beneficiaries as well. The Trust Hacker is brought to you by TrustTube, an educational resource for attorneys attempting to hack their way out of the confusing jungles of public benefits and tax law and to reach the sunny uplands of Trust Nirvana. Sign up for a free membership at TrustChimp.com. Gain access to educational membership materials. Have the latest newsletters and articles delivered to your inbox. And stay in the loop on the latest offerings at TrustChimp. That's TrustChimp.com. Well, let me ask you this. Um, that I think will be of particular interest to uh, our listeners is you did not come out of Georgetown as a tax lawyer. How did you learn it? The old-fashioned way? You just sat down and read it? Or what did you do? Well, I, I told people over the years that I've gotten to be very good at this area of law for two reasons. None of them I credit myself for. The first is that I've had great teachers. As I said, I worked with my father for uh, 12 years. Again, I actually worked for a few years after that. So 15 out of my 26 years of practicing law, I've been with my father, and he was a great teacher. And I also had some other wonderful uh, teachers uh, in the elder law community who have really helped me learn how to do things correctly. We also have a phenomenal uh, continuing legal education program. The New Jersey State Bar Association provides for the Institute of Continuing Legal Education. I've also done many seminars that have been conducted by our mutual friends, Jonathan Botmacher and Michael Grant, who really, if you need to know anything about taxes, you know, they're the guys to teach it. Uh, and the other, however, though, was I was the guy they threw into court. When I'd gotten out of law school, my father had recently split off from another firm, and the litigator went with the other firm. So my father did all the transactional work. His other partner at the time was still doing the real estate, and as my father's practice was growing in the fear of elder law, he was starting to get people that had disputes, and so uh, he decided that I was going to learn uh, trial by fire, so he said, my son will handle it, and I went to go to court a lot, and can still go to court a lot, though, for the grace of God, not as much as I used to. I have a couple young associates that are starting to take over that area of law. But because I went to court, I got to see what happened when things went wrong. And traditionally, things went wrong meant that mom or dad had a will, and one of the children was upset about the contents of the will, so there would be a will contest. But the big thing that we've seen over the last 15 to 20 years is improper planning. And, for example, um, someone would go to John Doe Attorney at Law or some you know, silly software or internet program, and they would try to create a special needs trust for a child with disabilities, but they would actually use the wrong language and create a support trust. 
which would automatically disqualify their child from SSI or Medicaid. So, you know, over the years, I've done a lot of what's called reformation, where I'll go to court and ask the court to, for lack of a better term, to rewrite the will after mom or dad has uh, passed away. Uh, the other big thing that I see is the issue of uh, fiduciary abuse and neglect. And that's because a lot of people, especially when they go to, like I say, John Doe attorney at law, or they you know, use one of these silly fill-in-the-blank programs, you know, they're getting a document, but they're not getting the requisite advice that goes with it. Uh, a lot of times when I've been involved in cases where an agent under a power of attorney or executor hasn't done his or her job appropriately, it's because mom and dad just merely filled in the blanks and they didn't think about the qualifications of someone that should be acting as an executor or an agent or a power attorney. Back in 2003, uh, our good friend Lee Holmes from Oklahoma and I did a presentation for the National Academy of Auto Attorneys on that topic and and discuss you know what you should and should not consider. So, because of a variety of issues like this, I think I've been blessed that I've learned how to do this area from certainly great seminars, but as I said really good teachers, but also seeing where things went awry. And because when I saw where things went awry, it made me spot issues and say, what can we do to make things better or to avoid problems? Now, one thing that many folks don't know about you is while you were busy doing all of this other stuff, you heeded the call and became a deacon in the Catholic Church. And for the non-Catholic listeners out there, uh, the Catholic Church has three orders of ordained clergy. You've got bishops and you've got priests and then you've got deacons who are fully ordained individuals. They've got their role within the church and To any Catholics listening out there, you'll understand right away what a deacon is. So you are actually um, uh, the Reverend Mr. Tom Begley. How much of your time does that take? It takes some time. I've been very blessed that the pastors with whom I've been assigned over the years recognize that I have a full-time practice and then some at work. They also recognize that I have a wife and five children, because God has such a great sense of humor, they range in age from 22 all the way down to six. So I am active, however, I'm not like a lot of the guys that are older and retired who will actually spend 15 to 20 hours a week. Generally, most weekends, I am serving at least two masses. Tomorrow, for example, I'll also be doing a funeral uh, locally, and I do a fair amount of wake services and baptisms, and a little bit of uh, pastoral counseling, but it's not been overwhelming. It's really been a, a blessing, and I've actually found that it's made me a better attorney. Um, as I once again, I think God has a great sense of humor. Uh, when I've been ordained, I've been ordained for 10 years, actually, next month, and in addition to doing Mass and preaching a fair number of homilies, the thing that gets me uh, tweaked a little bit uh is that probably the number one thing I do outside of uh, you know, the mass schedule is wake services and funerals. And you know, I kind of look up at the sky sometimes initially and say, oh, God, I deal with death feeding tubes and mental incapacity and children fighting for money all day. Do I really have to do this in the evening as well? And But I have found seeing what people go through at that particular point in the journey of life has given me better insight into, you know, the practice of law. Quite frankly, they're 
the reverse has happened as well. I think my experience as an elder law attorney has helped me deal with families more compassionately and with better insight. When I am uh, working with a family or administering to a family that is dealing with someone who is on the verge of passing or has already passed away. So it's been a and it's been a humble grace in my life. Have you ever buried a client? Uh, yes. Um, and that's that's actually been a compliment um, because I have had cases where I've gotten to know the family over the years, especially when you know, they've suffered with dementia or a stroke or some sort of illness over the course of the years. And I think even though we don't advertise, I never advertise my practice of law as a deacon, but I think people in the community know that this is the area of practice, and I guess folks that are familiar with me from various parishes will, I guess, come and see me, because sometimes, and this, they feel like they don't just need my expertise and asset protection or tax planning, but they also, I think, want to be able to talk about what they're struggling with at the time. And I think because of my background as a deacon, they will often ask, well, go off the clock for lack of a better term and talk to them. And I'm always happy to do that. And it's been uh, flattering and, I mean, very humbling when someone has passed when I get a phone call from the client and they're not calling initially to say, hey, Tom, can you set up an appointment to start the administration of Dad's estate? It's, hey, Tom, Dad passed away. Can you help officiate at the funeral? And that's that means a lot. The work thing is something that puts bread on the table, but to know that uh, families feel so strongly about you and vice versa that they would want you to be with them in such a sensitive and poignant moment of their life is very, uh, very touching. Do you ever run into any awkward situations with fees? It's like, well, here's Deacon Tom, and he's going to take care of us, and he's going to charge us? Uh, fortunately, I've been pretty blessed not to run into that situation. Every so often, there's someone that I know from a church community that I have a feeling may be an issue where they think, hey, he's a humble man of God, this will be, you know, on the house, we'll only have to pay him in prayer. But um, that's fortunately only happened a few times in the end. I've had that sense I've really just scared the person somewhere else because although the practice of law is what provides for my wife and my children, it's the, my vocation as a deacon is most important and if we have to choose between relationships, I prefer to be someone's deacon than their attorney. And if I think there would be any potential awkwardness with the representation or, you know, with the fee arrangement, I try to make sure that we steer people away before the conversation even gets started. What do you think is going to be the biggest challenge facing us as elder law and special needs law attorneys over the next five to ten years? And I'm figuring my timeline is, you're a bit younger than me, but um, my timeline is I'm going to be out of here, not permanently, like let's call Deacon Tom to come to Bob's funeral. But I'm, I'm thinking about hanging it up probably five to ten years from now, but you're going to be around 
longer than five to 10 years from now practicing. What do you think the biggest challenge is going to be and how are you adjusting your practice for that? Well, I think the biggest challenge that we're going to find is comes in two arenas. First, unfortunately, we have state and federal governments that have no respect for the money of the taxpayers and they don't budget their money well. And, you know, their desire to fix the budget, and this is really not a, you know, a Democrat versus Republican statement, it just is what it is, but their take is if we just charge people the taxpayer more money, this is how we'll deal with things. Um, if, you know, we ran our businesses the way the government ran their business, we'd be out of business. The problem is one of the ways that I think we would agree they have tried to balance their budgets in the last 10 years is on the backs of the elderly and the disabled, which I think morally is just shameful. I mean, up until 10 years ago, there was a three-year look back for Medicaid, and then the transfer penalties were reasonable. I do think you ought to have a situation where you can't give away your assets one day and ask for Medicaid the next day. I agree with that. So I've always believed that there ought to be some sort of regulation. But really what happened in 2006 was a, a slap in the face of the elderly because this generation, this greatest generation who we're now dealing with and their successors and the baby boomers, you know, the government promised them, you pay the taxes. When you get old, we're going to take care of you. And I don't think this is taking care of people. So because of that, we're seeing more and more tax by the state on special needs trusts or seeing that on income only trusts or other estate and tax planning vehicles. The other thing that I find to be an extraordinary threat, and I just spoke about this at the National Academy of Auto Law Attorneys annual meeting, is trust mills and software. Now, I know some people can get into a debate about this. They're thinking, gee, you know, you just want to, you know, get the money for yourself and, you know, I can just do this on my own without an attorney. The problem is, ironically, trust mills charge usually just as much, if not more, than most attorneys. And then they wind up trying to have you liquidate all of your assets so you can buy an annuity, which, you know, they do for the 8% commission rather than what's good for you. But the software programs that we're seeing more and more of is their abuse. Uh, there have been more and more cases that you hear about across the country, and I was involved in one over the past couple of years where an elderly person uh, is told by a child or a grandchild, hey, don't worry, we don't have to spend money on a lawyer. You know, I'll take care of the will for you. And so even on top of arguments that people can make about the qualities of the various software programs, even if you didn't have those concerns, these are programs that can be misused. We had a case literally where uh, mom was faltering in very frail health and was dependent upon one of her daughters. For years, it said she wanted to take care of her daughters 50-50. The problem was, over the last few months of her life, uh, one of her granddaughters got on the internet and cranked out a will which left everything to her mother and basically all but disinherited her in it. And that I find to be an abuse. And we're seeing more and more of that. So... So I find that my two big concerns moving forward is having to fight with the governmental agencies to protect the rights of the elderly and the disabled, and then secondly, to protect the public from those who are dishonest who would take advantage of their elderly parents 
by the misuse of software and Internet programs. And, and, and that brings up an interesting topic, and I've talked to a number of my previous guests on this very topic. The intersection between Medicaid asset protection planning and elder financial abuse. Some people don't think there's just any overlap whatsoever. Other thing, other people think there is. What, what do you think? Well, so once again, as long as we have human beings, there's always going to be a risk, and there are things that you need to do to minimize those risks. And that's why I'm a big fan of trying to set up trusts, because there's too many cases where you hear that you know mom or dad gives their money away to outright to a child, and then the child has some problems. Um, and the nice thing, if you set up a trust with mom and dad relatively healthy, you can not only help them qualify for long-term care benefits or minimize their exposure to death taxes, but you can also make sure that the right person or right entity is handling the money. I have had cases where you have, you know, I've had the case where there's two children, you know, one who's dishonest and one who's honest, and... It was almost like dueling banjos. Uh, this one case in particular, I'm thinking of, where literally you know, every couple of months, you know, mom was being taken by one child versus the other to change the power of attorney around. So the way we finally stopped that nonsense was the honest child came to our office and we set up an irrevocable trust and we put the assets into the irrevocable trust. And when it came time to, we had a couple that we had set up. And when the dishonest child, in this case, there was four of them, um, three, of, three of the children were very honest. Actually, the fourth one wasn't. Uh, she had actually stolen about you know forty-five to $50,000 out of her dad's safe. And, of course, that's one of those things that's hard to prove. But we knew that his dad was deteriorating with dementia, that probably the next thing that she was going to do was probably take that to the local bank and clean out his accounts. But the nice thing that had happened was a few years beforehand, while he was still in pretty good shape, we had set up uh, an irrevocable trust to protect his house and an irrevocable trust to protect a variety of his um, liquid assets so that when he was faltering and subject to abuse, the person, the abuser, wasn't able to access the funds. Along a similar vein, I've also been, it's been sort of a hot topic, is talking about dealing with agents under a power of attorney and with a principal that has diminished capacity. You know the drill. The attorney, in fact, shows up in the office says, we need to do something here, my concerns. Any advice on how to handle a situation like that? Who is the client? Are you representing the fiduciary or are you representing the client? Can you assume that the power of attorney is legitimate or or what? Well, that's probably the number one question that you ever get regarding the uh, issue of ethics. Now, the position that my father taught me years ago, and I've always respected enough to follow that, is that if you're the one who's doing the drafting, uh, you're working for mom or dad, you're not working for the kids, because it's mom or dad's money, and so we'll always have to be deferential. I mean, certainly legally, I'm sure you can set things up where you're representing the fiduciary, but... Unless there's a clear issue regarding capacity where you would need to get a guardianship when it comes to the power of attorney issue, I believe that you are representing the um, the principal. Now, let's say you signed the power of attorney in 2012 and in 2016, the agent comes in and says, I need to use the power of attorney and I'd like to do some planning. 
one thing that I will always do is, you know, reach out to mom or dad and make sure it's okay. Uh, if they're around or if they're not, if they're capacity, I would probably get some sort of verification because uh, I want to make sure that we don't have a rogue. The other issue, however, we have to look at, though, is what type of power of attorney do they have? Most people don't have a spring power anymore. I mean, that's the power of attorney that says that your agent can't act unless you're mentally incapacitated or signed a waiver. Having said that, most powers of attorney say that they're effective immediately. So uh, you, know, you have to use some sense of judgment, but I do think that you ought to have a little bit of diligence as well. I think first, it's the right thing to do for the parent. Second, uh, especially if there's any potential question regarding a dis- person's distribution, you need to make sure that you're sensitive to the needs of the entire family. And bluntly, as an attorney, you need to be sensitive to your needs. Uh, years and years ago, when people would have disputes over lifetime gifts or uh, state planning documents, you know, the kids would just sue each other. Nowadays, you know, they get some nice gentleman or lady from the personal injury bar and uh, especially with lifetime giving, they'll say, well, look, this could blow the money already. And they turn around, they sue the attorney for malpractice who prepared the plan. So I think for your own self-interest, you want to make sure you do a very cautious and diligent search before you do planning for a fiduciary. The Trust Hacker is brought to you by TrustChimp, an educational resource for attorneys attempting to hack their way out of the confusing jungles of public benefits and tax law and to reach the sunny uplands of Trust Nirvana. Sign up for a free membership at TrustChimp.com. Gain access to educational membership materials. Have the latest newsletters and articles delivered to your inbox. And stay in the loop on the latest offerings at TrustChimp. That's TrustChimp.com. You practice in a rough neighborhood, New Jersey, a rough neighborhood for elder and special needs law attorneys. And because I believe that things are only going to tighten up around the country, and I, I know that state Medicaid directors talk to their colleagues in other states, and I keep wondering how long it'll be before some other states take a page from the New Jersey playbook, I'm, I'm interested, and I know my listeners are very interested in what's going on in New Jersey and how you handle things in New Jersey. Um, one question that you and I had talked about uh, before we started in on this podcast was uh, my question about income-only trusts and uh, some of the significant restrictions on the use of income-only trusts that you run into New Jersey. Uh, what are some of those? Well, really, there are three issues that I see regarding the use of an income-only trust in the state of New Jersey. The first, as you and I discussed before getting on the air, was talking about the invasion of principle. And actually, if you take a look, there's a growing number of cases where states are trying to argue that if you utilize principle, that the trust can actually be busted altogether. I think you're probably aware of some cases that occurred over the past few months in both New York and Alabama involving special needs trust, where the expenditures from the trust were deemed inappropriate by the state. Now, up until a year or two ago, that would mean that if the state was correct, they would impose a period of ineligibility on the beneficiary, and then they would just let the person get back on Medicaid. But the answer in both of those cases, as you're probably aware, is that they said the trusts were busted and all the assets are considered uh, accessible and have to be spent and down to zero before the person can get their benefits back, uh, which is a very harsh and drastic result. But you know the language that I think 
states are going to take is to apply that to other trusts. And although there's no heavy case out in New Jersey yet, there has been rumblings that the state's taking the position that it's income only, despite the fact that most trusts are drafted to say that income in the principal can be distributed to uh, children. Uh, but they're taking a position that if you're distributing the uh, principal, then you know, that may be considered an evasion that would either create some sort of period of ineligibility or in the alternative that they would say that you have to bust the trust. Uh, the two big things that you also get in the state of New Jersey is the fact that New Jersey has made it clear they believe that the trust would be subject to a state recovery. So when you did when the income trust, income only trust came out 20 some odd years ago, it was a very safe Medicaid planning technique. You know, mom and dad got the income off the assets, which was great before they went into a nursing home and gave them something to live off of. And as you know, most of our clients, they live off of the income. They don't touch the principal, but they really do want that income. So they got that. However, when they passed away, the principal wind up going to you know, their children or whoever their heirs would be. The state has now indicated that they believe that those funds should be accessible for a state recovery. So let's say that sets up a trust for $250,000 and years down the road, he goes into Happy Acres Nursing Home and he's there for several years and when he dies, uh, the state has spent $300,000 on his care. The state's position likely is going to be that the $250,000 in the trust is going to them. The third thing, which is a surefire problem in New Jersey, is that it is considered part of the taxable estate of the uh, individual who passes away. So in that $250,000 example, let's um, I have a case right now where we're trying to fix things for a lady who's in her early 90s, and she has a residence trust or a children's trust, as some people call it, and she's got a couple houses in there uh, worth about uh, $400,000. She's got about $100,000 in her own name, and she's got about $350,000 in this income only trust. Because of the fact she's probably in better health than you and I and most of the people in their 60s and 50s, I mean, at the age of 90, we should be you know, really stoked if we could be half as healthy as she is. We're not so much concerned about the long term care at this point, but we are concerned because if she passes away, there'll be a tax. I mean, an $850,000 state, believe it or not, in New Jersey, is going to ding with a $20,000 tax, give or take. So we want to make sure that, as I tell people, there's a possibility you will need long-term care, but there's a certainty that you're going to die. So for a host of reasons, the income-only trust is something that we don't utilize, at least in the circles of uh, attorneys I deal with, on a regular basis anymore. Well, what I'm puzzled about is when you've got an income-only trust... And um, there, there's no possible distribution of principal. There might be some discretionary, maybe some kind of discretionary uh, sprinkle standard among descendants, other beneficiaries. And then there's some named beneficiaries. Uh, on what basis is the state coming after the principal on a state recovery? And what's to keep the trust from saying, well, we're going ahead and distributing? Well, there's a couple of things to well, basically, you know, bluntly, and it's not just New Jersey, although we're you know, a pretty bad state in this regard. It's Let's just make it the rules as we go along. Um, we've had a couple significant uh, issues that we chronically deal with. 
Uh, one issue that we've been dealing with now for about 10 or 12 years is the issue, of, for example, of the caregiver child exemption. Uh, the law makes it pretty clear that for years and years that if somebody took care of their mom or dad and lived with their mom and dad and provided care for uh, 20, you know, for two years, excuse me, that kept them out of a nursing home, that you could transfer the house to them. And for years and years, the only thing you had to do when mom or dad went to the nursing home was file an affidavit saying this is the level of care provided. And of course, the family physician had to do the same affidavit as well. And that was good enough. But now, what happened, there was a case where New Jersey was shot down. We had a director of the Board of Social Services that said, I want to see all the medical records. And actually, I knew this guy very well. And actually, I like him a lot personally. He's retired now. But his thought process was for every person that was really, truly helping mom and dad, there was also the same number of people at least that had never you know, launched out of the house and was just a lifelong leech. And, but his response was to ask for all the medical records for two years. And unfortunately, in this day and age, our good doctor friends are very, very busy with paperwork. And typically, if you look at the records, they talk about the blood, the urine test, and whatever the ache and pain is, but they're not making notes saying, well, gee, this is the condition of the person mentally, and oh, by the way, this is what the kid's doing at home, and so it really is creating a very tough situation. Now, you know, the courts basically said that New Jersey couldn't do that, but a lot of them are still trying to do it anyway in the boards, and then also they've come out recently in some areas trying to say that uh, if you're going to get the caregiver exemption, you have to quit your job, for lack of a better term. You have to do this full-time. If you have any caregivers, they won't let you have it. So, And I think that's very punitive to people because let's assume you are a good soul and you want to take a couple of you know years off of work and take care of mom and dad. And then and, you know, you're working... Well, let me back that up a little bit. Let's just say that you are working full-time and you get home at 5 o'clock from work and you're taking care of mom from 6 o'clock to 8 o'clock in the morning, and then you're taking care of them all weekend, uh, then you're basically told, gee, we decided to work, we're going to penalize you for that. And then uh, at that point, you're basically telling people, well, why don't you quit the workforce? Well, let's face it, this day and age, if you're in your 40s, 50s, or 60s and you quit work for a couple of years, good luck getting a job when your mom or dad dies, right? So they've been doing stuff like that in that area. And they just, for example, we have special needs trusts. Bob, as you know, they're in general governed by federal statute, the biggest one being the D4A trust. And, you know, the palms are very clear as to what you can and cannot put inside a special needs trust. Despite that, New Jersey actually has a handful of its own requirements. You have to put in all of their trusts in order for them to accept them. So, you know, there's no legal basis, but it's one of those things where, you don't have the clients don't want to spend a zillion dollars to fight these things. So I think it's, unfortunately, it's not just New Jersey, but it's many states. And I think the some extent our federal government that they don't know how to manage their money. So rather than do the right thing and spend less, it's let's uh, penalize the elderly and the disabled, which is just, you know, shameful. So if you shy away from income-only trusts, what do you do? Irrevocable trust with no retained interest? Correct. And there's two trusts that we utilize. One is what's called a, my father calls it a children's trust. Um, I call it a residence trust. And there, there is a retained interest there. 
Uh, we used to really call a right to use and occupy rather than a life estate. And then the it has the same concept, except it doesn't create any problems if someone sells a house while mom or dad's alive as far as Medicaid eligibility. And what I do is I call it a family trust. I do that for the liquid assets. And you have to balance whether it makes sense to do it. I also tell people this is where you have to understand not just strict rules or NADC application. A lot of times, for example, I have a family I'm completing some work for over the next couple of days where dad died and we're concerned that mom may have some long term carriages, but we also have some tax issues and but she's eighty eight. She's in good but not phenomenal health. And one of the things we were talking about with the children is, well, you know, what happens to this income and this irrevocable trust? You know, what if mom needs it? I think when mom is 40 or 50 or 60, that's, uh, or even her 70s, that's an appropriate discussion to have. But if mom is 88 or 89 years old and, you know, she's probably going to be around for a few more years, but not forever, it's not a big deal if we're touching the principal that's in mom's name to supplement what she's not getting into the income. This is where I think a lot of attorneys don't do a good job is that they look at the narrow issue rather than how you balance things. So after we talked to the family and counseling for a little bit, they thought, yeah, that's okay. You know, we'll keep the income. And, you know, certainly if mom ever needs anything, you know, although there's legal obligation, we love mom and we would take care of it. But also, it's not a sin for mom to start invading some of the principal because, there's no way she's going to go through all the principal plus the income during the course of her lifetime. Uh, we could go on for a long time, and I, I may end up getting you back, but I want to keep you on schedule because I know you have an appointment. Why don't we wrap up here with you taking a couple of minutes to tell us any particular project that you're involved with that you would like listeners to know about? or if they need help with a New Jersey question, how they can reach you, anything you want us to know about? Well, basically, I work at the firm Cape Art and Scatcher. We have a number of offices in Delaware, Pennsylvania, New York, and uh, New Jersey, but the main hub is in Mount Laurel, which is about 15 to 20 minutes outside of Philadelphia. I've been there for about five years. It's a phenomenal firm, and I'm currently the chair of the Trust and Estates Group. And if anyone wants to reach out to me regarding any questions or if they ever want to have a matter handled on their behalf, they can either contact me at my direct line, which is area code 856-914-2085, or my email address, which is tbegley at capeart.com. That's T-B-E-G-L-E-Y at capeart, C-A-P-E-H-A-R-T.com. Okay, and I'll put that uh, online in the show notes, too. So if you're listening to this and you didn't get it, don't panic, just go and look um, on the uh, website. And I'm going to let you run to your appointment. Wish we had a bit more time, but Tom, it's been great, and, and I really appreciate you joining me. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Hope to talk to you soon. As I mentioned early in this episode, the Trust Hacker is offering a new feature for our listeners. If you have a slippery technical question that has been driving you nuts, call and describe your dilemma in 30 seconds or less. If it catches my attention, I'll run down an answer with one of the Trust Hacker's guests, and we've had a lot of high-powered ones, and play your question and your answer back on a future episode. Just call 336 336 
308-3556 and follow the instructions. That's 30 seconds or less. Sorry, we don't have five minutes for a long fact pattern. I challenge you to edit your question down to 30 seconds or less. 336-308-3556. And on that happy note, I'm out of here. TrustChimp.com. 